folks, welcome back. I'm your host, Simon Ward, and this is the High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast, where I can promise you that you will always hear a Yorkshire accent and we will never have any adverts. We chat with our guests about peak performance, fitness, health, nutrition, recovery, longevity, relationships, and happiness, because it doesn't matter whether you want to finish your first sprint triathlon, set a PB at your next race, or just keep turning up until you're in your 70s. Each of these elements has real significance. Now let's crack on with our guest today, Dan Bigham. Dan's made a name for himself in recent years, firstly, creating the disruptive track cycling team you might know as Hugh Watt Bike, helping cyclists and triathletes in their relentless pursuit of speed with his retail business watchshop, and more recently, having a big involvement with the Sub 7 project as a bike pacer for Alistair Brownlee. On top of that, he's currently working with Ineos Grenadiers and also preparing for his own tilt at the World Hour record. Oh, and he has a book out, Start at the End, which we'll be referring to frequently. Basically, he's been a very busy lad. Welcome to the show, Mr. Dan Bigham. Thank you for having me, Simon. Uh, always uh, enjoy a good podcast. I'm a massive fan of them, full stop. Keep me through uh, some of the long turbos, which I'm training behind me. So, yeah, good to come yeah. and chat. Well, I read your book uh, recently. Uh, we're going to give a big shout out to that in the show notes, but we should mention it. Oh, we should start at the beginning and talk, <laughs> and talk about your book, which is called Start at the End. Um, I, can, I can thoroughly recommend it. And, and as I started reading it, I thought, well, this is fairly obvious because this is how I always started with my triathlon programs. I'd ask people what it is you want to achieve when you cross the finish line and then work out where you're at now. So now we've got a start and an end point. And then I, as, as a coach, I always see myself like satellite navigation, helping somebody to plot a route, but they're still driving so they can ignore me if they like. And I try not to get judgmental and just say, okay, well, you've taken a wrong turn. Let's do this and let's do that. Um, so it did seem fairly obvious to me, but I guess I, t- I talked to a few people about it as well. And they were like, wow, yeah, that's, that's really interesting. So it, maybe it's not as obvious as I thought. Yeah, I wonder if it's to do with uh, the background of uh, of where you come from or your kind of uh, studies or, or what, because I think some people it becomes natural, it's intuitive, or you've been taught it. And for others, it's a completely mind-blowing new concept of, yeah, reverse engineering, starting with a goal and breaking it down. Because from an engineering perspective, that's absolutely what you do. You, you have a goal, you have an ambition to design something, produce something. Um, but you need to understand exactly what that is, how you can get there, what, where all the pitfalls lie, what tools, assets, all that kind of stuff that you've got. And I think it's a it's a nice analogy and it really transitions well into sport because we all have these goals. And in the modern day world, it's very easy to, to start measuring things and to, to break those things down into meaningful and actionable components. Mm. But yeah, I think day to day, it's it's not something that example you don't do a module on it back at school you don't get taught this kind of way of thinking but it's it's really practical and, and really helpful i think for a lot of people to to do that well i find as well if you if you approach any particular task with this way you can cut out an awful lot of the crap that you end up doing and the and the, and the wrong turns just just by maybe sitting down for an hour first and thinking well where do i want to be right what steps you know even if it's as mundane as getting a new job like okay i want to get this job 
this is where I'm at now. What skills do I need to get in the meantime so that I'm prepared for that job when the interview comes along? Okay, so I need to spend a bit of time doing this. I need to spend a bit of time doing that. I need to uh, I need to gain some experience here. I need to get that qualification right. These are the four things I've got to do before I feel like I'm going to apply for that job. That that's that to me seems an entirely natural process. Yeah, and I think once people have read read the book or done their own research on it, then suddenly it becomes yeah pretty logical and pretty natural and to understand the demands of your event. So in, in triathlon, in cycling, yeah, I mean, pretty much in all sport, you know what or you can figure out pretty easily what it takes to achieve your goal. Mm. And then from there, it's just figuring out where you are, exactly as you said, the, the whole GPS navigation, where you are now, where you need to be, mm. and everything that you need to do in the middle ground to get there and what's going to help you. Is it equipment? Is it learning? Is it nutrition? Is it something completely left field? And I think by breaking it down, you can start to understand what's important and what's not because quite easily athletes get distracted. I'm sure you, you've had countless mm. questions. I've seen this really cool new thing on cycling, oh, yeah. cycling tips. Should I get it? And you're like, let's break this down again. You, you are here. You need to be there. These are everything that you need to do. This is on the critical path to your performance. You getting a new smartwatch that does one extra thing is probably not going to help or that specific new invention in nutrition probably actually isn't all that relevant to you and i think mm. once you understand what what is important and what isn't you can really focus your energy and i think that that's probably the biggest biggest strength of it well we we were talking about steven seiler um just before we started he he presented at a training peaks conference in Manchester. He had this fantastic pyramid, which is like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And at the bottom, it's like training, just focus on volume and frequency. Then if you want to add a bit of intensity, add some intensity. Then if you want to be more specific, add 10% intensity, right? These, these three will give you pretty much what you need to get close there. If you want to get the sports watch, if you want to get the fancy new set of pedals, if you want to go and get a disc wheel on the front and a, and then swither around between a 60 mil and 80 mil deep rim wheel on the back, on the, on the front, do that. But that's the icing on the cake. These other, th- and if you're not doing these other things at the bottom, this thing's probably not going to make a great deal of difference. Just, you're just going to feel a bit better because you spent a grand. Yeah, I think uh, cycling is structured that way, though, isn't it? Because because of sponsorship, because of how the, the whole mm. industry works, that so people need to buy new components. People need to continue to progress on that front. But unfortunately, when you break it down, the biggest gains don't come from yeah. a new tyre or a slightly deeper wheel or whatever it might be. As much as they, they do have an impact, and absolutely they do, but you can split it into energy in and energy out. And for most people, putting more energy into the equation is going to find you a huge amount more performance than really reducing those losses on the other side. And it's a nice way of balancing it. And I think that's where, again, breaking down the demands of your event, where are you now? What do you need to do to, to achieve the performance that you want to do? And most of the time, it's just you need to be fitter. And triathlon especially it's such an aerobically strong sport it just rewards consistency you've got to train and you've got to be on your bike and you've got to be swimming and running as much as you you realistically can as much as you can recover and everything around that should support it and in my head i tend to treat them both as separate entities that you're working on your engine your energy in and then you're working on the energy outside and ideally they don't interact too heavily or at least they don't compromise each other too much because if, you don't, if you're not doing one and not doing the other, you're probably not going to get the performance at the end, but it's knowing how much you need to focus on one and how much on the other because we all have limited resource. Like a lot, a lot of athletes nowadays, you're probably training maybe 10 to 15 hours a week, best case scenario. And that, in the grand scheme of things, there's a very limited amount of time. And if, if suddenly you've got to spend five more hours tweaking something, 
then suddenly that's five hours that you can't go and go and train and find those aerobic improvements that are rewarded from the consistency side. So yeah, it's, it's always a trade-off in life. And um, I think at least historically, I know I've often made the trade-off in the wrong direction and not focused enough on that aerobic consistency and the volume side that, that does reward performance. performance. Well, the listeners are probably familiar with your name to some extent. Um if they read your book, they'll get a much better picture of your cycling journey. What what they probably aren't aware of is that, you know, you're a keen cyclist. You had this dream. But before that, your work, which is now, you're now in cycling, and we'll come on to that later. You were working as an aerodynamicist. So you get a lot of scrabble points with that word. Um, <laughs> you were working as an aerodynamicist in Formula One. In fact, I think you were working for um, Mercedes, weren't you? So that you must have been uh, integral in some of um, Lewis Hamilton's early world championship wins, I would think. Yeah, yeah, about 10 years ago now, 2012. So it was Nico Rosberg, Lewis Hamilton era that I was there. And funny enough, because of where I am now with Ineos Grenadiers, Ineos um, as a sport uh, are involved in a lot of different teams, including Mercedes F1 team. Mm-hmm. So now I'm sitting on the other side of the fence talking to people that I used to work with, which is, is quite an interesting one that... From, from, yeah, the Formula One era through to cycling era and the, the transition and the crossover between the two as well, because at the end of the day, the laws of physics are the same. Okay, yeah. we go a little bit slower than the, the F1 cars do, but the, the learnings uh, are absolutely applicable across the board. It's just that cycling is about 20 years behind where Formula One is right now. But yeah, I worked there in, um, in the aerodynamics department in uh, the design group that originally focused on a lot of the car body. So I was working on wing mirrors and then the diffuser corner. So I spent a lot of time designing wing mirrors and then a lot of time designing basically the bit of the diffuser just by the wheel at the rear of the car. Um, and I spent, yeah, a lot of time iterating through. But it was an interesting environment, one that taught me a huge amount, not just about aerodynamics, but about what is high performance and how do you achieve high performance. But at the same time, I realized it wasn't where my heart lay as a career path. I knew as an athlete I was progressing and I wanted to try and tie together my own athleticism side thing. Well, at the time, actually triathlon, but uh, we'd come on to that. So I was a triathlete before I yeah. before I switched. Uh, and my engineering, and they really do go hand in hand. And it was this kind of uh, lovely time in, in cycle sport where engineering was becoming applicable. The people started to appreciate the impact of aerodynamics and rolling resistance and drivetrain efficiency and pacing and power and all that kind of stuff. Mm. The stuff that you learn as an engineer you're like, wow, I can make a difference to my own performance. I can do all my training as I would normally do. And then I could do a bit of testing and a bit of improvement and apply some, some from this module and a bit from that module and I can go a bit faster. And what's not to like about going a bit faster for a bit of nerd, sort of nerd action, some spreadsheets. So, yeah, must, it really set me going. You must, you must feel a little frustrated now with the Mercedes seeming to go a little backwards compared to everybody else. The, the, new, the new designs in the sport have left them um, hanging out a bit, haven't they, after so many years of success? And it, I, I was reading the other day that this, this sort of really radical side pod design that they've got, which seems to be completely different to everybody else's, leaves their car performing completely different to everybody else's. So, you know, my limited understanding of this says, well, okay, if everybody else is going really well and you're not, and this is the one thing that makes yours look really different, why don't you just go back to having a, a car like everybody else's design? Maybe that maybe mm. there's an e- maybe there's an ego thing at play. Like, well, we'll look a bit stupid if we admit that we were wrong, but um, better than a, better than better to be wrong and admit it than being uh, out of the points. Yeah, I think the major one probably is the the limiting factor of of resource. So it's obviously a big problem in, in cycling and triathlon, if you're, especially if you're an individual athlete, you have to do your own research yourself. Formula One have been uh, 
boxed in really this year. They're, they have a limited amount of budget, a limited number of wind tunnel CFD hours, etc. So if you make a mistake, you don't, you can't really spend your way out of it, which is what historically the big teams have done. If they've mm. done, the rules have changed. Ah, oh, I've made a mistake here. Let's learn from the wisdom of the crowd. What's everyone else doing? Great, we'll implement a bit of that. Learn about it and just help develop them. But you can't help develop people when uh, you don't have the money or the resource to do it, which is is quite nice because then you get these minnow teams. You got your Hass F1 suddenly performing really well. Mm. Yeah, I follow Formula One really closely. Not so much for the racing, which okay is enjoyable, but it's not something I chase chase out. It's the engineering side, and I really follow that quite heavily. Which is maybe a nerdy thing to say, but it's much like cycling to be honest. I don't don't follow cycling, and I, I follow triathlon as well for the same reason. I don't follow the sport. For the racing, I follow the sport for the engineering. And I think that's just who I am as an athlete, that I'm in I'm in sport because I enjoy applying my engineering and I love to see what other engineers and aerodynamicists and people in general are coming up with. How how are they approaching the problem of performance and what can I learn from what they're doing? Which sometimes you learn a little bit in competition, but mostly yeah, it's just seeing what bikes and equipment and positions they come up with. So I can see, and I'm sure the listeners are starting to make a link now that track cycling is very precise. I remember listening to, I actually spent a, a few days right at the beginning of, I think it was 2005 with cycling with Dave Brailsford and Shane Sutton and listening to them talk about how you can, and then I know Dan Hunt quite well from when he was at triathlon. Mm-hmm. So listening to them talk about how, if you know, if if you know the wind resistance and you know the rider's power and, you know, the, and all of these other things, you can, you can predict what times are going to win and you know where everybody else is. It's, it's not quite as easy to do that on the road, is it? And most of our listeners are not, uh, probably don't have the benefit of even having ridden on the track. But I'd like you to just, um, if you can, uh, sort of articulate some of the the similarities between Formula One and track cycling, where data and numbers uh, equate very closely to performance. Sure. So I guess the, in the world of triathlon and, and road cycling, there's so many variables that are very hard to even measure, let alone track longitudinally over entire event, road roughness, wind conditions, mm. when you have to break, what, what the guy in front of you is going to do? <laughs> You're coming into a corner, they're going to go left, they're going to go right. All that kind of stuff is, is really hard to model and to understand. Whereas in cycling, in track cycling, you're riding on a velodrome. It's, well, I don't know if you call it pan flat, but the elevation doesn't change if you ride in, on the same line. You've obviously got a banking at 42 degrees, give or take on the corners and around 12 degrees on the straights. Uh, but conditions are the same. There's no headwinds, tailwinds, temperatures the same. There's no brakes. There's one gear. There's no free hub. Um, it is as much as you could distill cycling down into the essence of what it is. Uh, the simplest machine you could find, the simplest track you could find, and an athlete, that is pretty much what track cycling is. But because of that, because of its simplicity, it makes life a lot easier from an engineering perspective to start to measure and understand what's happening. So the dynamics of what happened on the track are actually very different to the road. For example, you're going through the banking. You have what's called a centripetal acceleration, which basically people perceive as feels like you're you're suddenly heavier, so your tyres load differently. Your um, air, the angle of onset flow, so the wind, for example, going through a corner is slightly different. So you have a, a bit coming from above and a bit coming from the left. And then it all is all very variable, but um, variable. it's all very different to what you get on the road, but all very measurable. And then in Formula One, it's much the same. You have a controlled circuit. Okay, there's a few more corners, but they're they're measuring all these different variables that we do much the same actually in cycling now. So they would measure power, they would measure airspeed, they would measure wind direction, 
elevation. They would measure all the different temperatures of different things on the car, um, the braking torques, ride height. Okay, we don't have a ride height, we don't have brakes, but on the track, we are measuring your roll angle. We're measuring uh, the airspeed, we're measuring the air direction, we're measuring your power, we're measuring uh, the wheel speed, we're measuring uh, well, tire forces and a few other things that basically mean you can really, really, to find and find details, understand what's happening when you're riding on a track. So when, for example, you do an hour record, you can break it down into sort of half lap chunks and see how much like your CDA varies. And it's really quite cool to see how it drifts. And um, I did a really interesting test run where I censored myself up with all manner of sensors. So I had um, muscle EMG to measure how hard I was contracting my quads and my glutes. I had core body temperature sensors, I had um, biomechanical angle trackers. I had all the aero data. I even had some sensors measuring the angle of my helmet in all three orientations. And you could see when it all started to go wrong in the final 20 minutes of our practice hour, then my head starts rolling and to what degree it's moving and what the impact is on my aerodynamics. And is that because of my legs are fatiguing and my glutes can't fire as hard? And you start to create all these interactions and sometimes correlations and are, are they causative? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. And it's that's the really exciting thing about track cycling, that you can really dig into this nitty gritty of proper good old fashioned engineering and science. And I guess that's why I was attracted to it as a sport. It just, um, it rewards that that sort of willingness to really drill down and try and understand why things are happening. And then once you understand why, you can obviously then use that to your advantage to hopefully get faster. Well, that's it. I mean, my as a strength coach as well, my immediate thought was, well, if your head's rolling around, maybe that's to do with neck strength then as you're getting fatigued, maybe you're hunching your shoulders, your core's not strong enough. So maybe there's a little bit more time in the gym. You know, it's the same as when you're swimming. Um I had a, a swim coach on who was telling me that he, he works with the British, the elite British triathletes, and he was saying he gets them to think about this double chin posture. So you're pulling your chin back so you're not poking your chin because when you're in the water, you want to basically be looking down at the bottom and have perfect spinal alignment. Uh, but sometimes the athletes can't get that because they're too tight across the shoulder girdle. So then they have to go to the physios and say, you know, is this a biomechanical problem? Is this just tightness? What can we do about it? But that might be the difference between, you know, two or three meters between swimmers. But two or three meters, as we know, if when we've watched the uh, the World Triathlon Series, is that it, it, if you're between groups, two or three meters is the difference between getting out of the swim in the first and second group and then making it into the first group on the bike. And that could be yeah. critical for your race. So that that one little thing could be the reason why um, why you're not making that front pack, and it might have nothing to do with your swimming ability at all. And it totally changes the dynamic of your event and how your race goes, right? If yeah. you know you've you've broken down your event and said, okay, I'm always on the cusp of first pack, but being on the cusp means either your race goes incredibly well or incredibly badly. The breaking point for you is to swim. And you might be a bad swimmer and think, well, I can make it up on the bike, but you're better off to invest all of your effort there. Focus on that weakness, put yourself in a better situation. Mm -hmm. and then the entire race goes better, but you need to understand the demands of your event and exactly where you lie to, to go and achieve that. And I think, yeah, exa exactly on understanding what you can do about it as well. So is it biomechanical? Is it a, a, a genuine limitation? Is it muscle tightness? Is it mm. something else completely? Are, are you just losing focus on what you're trying to hold? And this, it's often multifactorial. You can never, well, rarely pin it down to it is exactly this. There's always a few bits of grey of probably a bit of this and a bit of that. But knowing it's an issue means you can start to address it and then get the, the help and guidance you need. Well, Let's let's talk about cycling then. 
Um, you said you started out as a triathlete. That was while you were at university, wasn't it? That was, yeah, yeah. Until I was, uh, I think it was my final year of uni. I decided to to just go to cycling. I picked up injury after injury, uh-huh. plantar fasciitis, and I, I wasn't a triathlete. I tried. I really did try. I just wasn't. I was never good enough on the swimming front. I swam a little bit as a kid, but I, as you well know, and I think many people can appreciate this, if you if you didn't swim competitively as a child it's, it's a long hard battle it's there's something about learning that skill and mm. everything that goes with it when you're so open and, and such a sponge and you can absorb these things very quickly and easily when you're a grown adult so it's, it's an uphill battle to say the least when uh, we were jack maitland and i were running the talent id program for the north of england we had this brief and it was uh, came from head office at loughborough but we really were looking for talented swimmers and runners who just weren't, they weren't quite talented enough to make it as a swimmer or a runner, but they were still pretty good. I mean, that was how we found the Brownleys, for instance. You know, they didn't, they didn't quite make it in the performance squad in Leeds in the swimming, um, but they were still doing pretty well and they were running pretty well. And we figured that if they, were, if they had those skills, if they had the engine and the technical skills from swimming as a young age and they could run fast, over short distances, you can teach them to ride a bike. And in the main, that that would um, that would work. It, a great example, actually, Scott Thwaites was part of that squad as well. Now, you probably know Scott from cycling. And Scott was never quite making it as a swimmer or a runner. And in all the races, he wasn't quite making it into the same group as the Brownleys. Scott's, Scott's dad, Des, was like, you, you've cut him from the squad, lads. You make the big mistake. He's a great cyclist. He's as good as the Brownleys. And we're like, yeah, Des, but he just doesn't make it as a swimmer and a runner. Yeah, but you should bloody let him in. You know, like, like, look, here's Shane Sutton's address. Go and speak to Shane at British Cycling. We think Scott will do really well in cycling. And of course, as it turned out, we, were, we weren't far off the mark there. <laughs> yeah, he's gone pretty well. So it's yeah. you that I need to blame because I remember that form. I remember looking at it and it'd be like, what are all your swimming PBs? What are all your running PBs? Checkbox. Can you ride a bike? Yeah, <laughs> not, me, like, not me. Not me. Not me. The um, the, the talent at program manager at that time was a, a, a gentleman called Paul Buxton. And mm. I have been trying to find the initial syllabus that he wrote because it was fantastic because it wasn't just about swimming and cycling and running performance. It was about um, at 16, they should they should understand the value of looking after their own bikes and turning up to races with a clean bike. They should understand that when they go on a training camp, they're not on holiday. They're actually on on duty. They're they're working. They're representing the country, so they need to turn up smart, um, polite, you know, punctual. Um, they need to understand the value of good nutrition and be able to make basic meals. You know, a lot of a lot of stuff that you know you're you're there living in Andorra. You need to have those skills when you're looking after yourself on the road, don't you? Um, Absolutely, yeah. And so, I think it's been taught those things as well. Like um, if you come through the right environment, then they they become natural and normal. And you, you can often tell the athletes who have had support of a governing body or a good club around them. And those who have come to the sport with natural ability, but don't, yeah, because they struggle on those kind of things. And at the end, they, they do make you an athlete, and they do differentiate. They're, they are the one percent. Well, not no, actually, I tell you, one percent. There's no food is massive. Food is not a one percenter, but being able to cook your own meals it yeah. does differentiate over time, right? Well, I can remember Graham Moore, who's performance director, saying, "Simon and Jack, I want to tell you, I was heartily pleased today when I walked past. A, I can't remember where we were, we were on a training camp, and he said." And I saw that young Will Clark and Dan Brooke 
sitting cleaning their bikes and making sure everything looked really smart and tidy. And he said, clearly the program's working. And I mean, Dan, um, Dan went on to perform well as an under 23. Will, obviously, we know, has had a great professional career at the highest level. So, um, again, coming through and being taught the basics from an early age. Um, anyway, let's go back to you, Dan. So, uh, you didn't cut it as a, a triathlete because you were getting injured. It happens to a lot of people, but triathlons losses, cycling's gain. Um, you, you, take, you take up cycling. Um, t- talk us through quickly about how all that went up to the point where you decided to become a massive disruptor in the sport. Because I, I, love, I, love I love that whole thing about being a disruptor in any industry. Oh, it's, it's good fun, that bit. So uh, where, did, where do I begin? So the, the transition from triathlon to cycling was 2014, 2015. And I just rose through the domestic ranks on, on road racing and time trialing. I was a good time trialist. I think as a triathlete, especially as an age group, you have to be. Uh, and that's where my interest lied, the whole engineering crossover. It definitely reaps more benefits when you're riding solo against a clock as opposed to in a group. But physiologically, I, I was capable of riding top level domestically. I podiumed one of the UCI races in the UK in 2016, Beaumont Trophy, which is kind of, a, I guess, a big breakthrough result. And uh, the, the winter of 2016, I decided to have a go at track cycling and head towards the National Track Champs. I'd been there just over a year and a half before I'd gone to basically just, yeah, figure it out. Is it something I'm interested in? And I'd been bitten by it and was pretty keen because of the whole the scientific engineering applicable uh, side of the of the sport. So, uh, yeah, basically I convinced a few mates that we should have a go at the team pursuit with Charlie Tanfield, Johnny Whale and, and Jacob Tipper. And we had a basically four weeks of training together. We all had a lot of different ideas from our own kind of backgrounds, obviously myself with engineering. Charlie was also studying engineering at the time, but Jacob, he'd come from uh, undergrad and master's sports science. Uh, Johnny was sports, uh, sorry, just psychology, not sports psychology. Um, but we're all a bit more mature, I guess, than most athletes that we were competing against in that we'd experienced life and everything that goes with it and the sport. And we could see it from a bit more of, uh, a bit more of a distance, I guess, a bit more perspective on, on what performance could be or should be and have our own ideas that we wanted to apply. So, okay, four weeks is a short period, but we, we managed to do a whole lot in that and rocked up to the to the Trek Nationals early 2017 where we won the individual pursuit with a one-two and I won the kilo and then we won the team pursuit, broke the competition record and beat the National Academy. So it was kind of a bit of a breakthrough event as a, as a group go it goes and um off the back of that thought how do we really progress this on and the next sort of natural step or the only real step forward from racing domestically is the uci track world cup which i mean it's when you look back it's not extortionally expensive when you've got the budget but at the time when you've just left university and you've got overdrafts and student loans and mm-hmm. no real income source it's actually pretty expensive so we managed to scrape around our first season with about 16,000 pounds of funding from a few different sources. We represented the Karen Green Foundation, which is a charity in Nottingham that um, supports families who uh, have somebody struggling with leukemia. So they give them respite care, send them on some nice trips and things. And we wanted to represent them. So Ellen, uh, Ellie Green, who basically helped to run the team, she was there at all the different races and filling in all manner of documents that go with the UCI world. Uh, her mum had passed away, Karen Green, uh, with leukemia. So she'd set it up and it, it seemed like a logical thing to, to really support and to back. And yeah, it just gave us um, something to, to fly our flag under. 
and yeah, we we stepped up at the World Cup. We performed terribly in our first one. <laughs> we were, <laughs> we were pretty pretty hopeless. Well, no, actually, that's the wrong term. We weren't hopeless. We were really really good, but we we had a weak link. And I think we went into that competition uh, knowing we had a weak link, but not willing to address it because we didn't have another option. Well, that was in Poland, right? And um... That, was that right? That first race, yeah. you, you were in yeah. Poland, and then. But there's other things that got in the way there, like that the hotel was miles from the track, the food was rubbish, you know, all the things that you don't expect when you go into a world class standard event. You think things are going to be nice and sweet and easy to do, and so there were other there were other little obstacles. Just, I, I mean, I appreciate that the you had the, the you had the weak link, but it wasn't all it wasn't all plain sailing in the in the run up, was it either? And I guess no, those no. those those are the things you learn that you can't take for granted. Yeah, I think uh, exactly that. We didn't know what we were going into. We assumed, rightly or wrongly, that you'd have some nice accommodation and some decent food. But when you, uh, you turn up and the only food that you can basically get is 20 euros a meal. And you think when you've got four riders plus a mechanic, whatever, actually we didn't have a mechanic that year, plus a manager and basically a helper, then times that by a week and it actually gets pretty expensive and we definitely did not have the budget for that so yeah we ended up eating some pretty terrible hotel food that yeah i wouldn't even feed to a dog to be (laughs) honest it was it was pretty terrible but i mean you may do we didn't have any choice in the matter right we were where we were we were miles from the track with terrible food you do what you can and yeah we see see what we could achieve but yeah performance wise jacob just wasn't up to it at least he'd been pretty ill going into it the week before um just one of those things. I think COVID's probably taught us a much better hygiene as we go around. And I think mm. if we'd known back then that even like wearing a face mask on a plane, probably people would stare at you, but it would have been a great thing going into competition and reduce the likelihood of these things. But anyway, I put, put him on the back foot and it meant that we qualified seventh and fell apart in the rounds. And that was kind of the end of, of Poland for us. And for all the hype of everything we'd gone through over the past 12 months or so to turn up and fall flat on our face, it was pretty disappointing and we had a week to turn it around towards uh, our home World Cup in Manchester, which um, was no, no small feat, but we had nothing to lose. If we turned up at Manchester and done the same thing, then we hadn't learned our lesson. It was just a good opportunity to throw caution to the wind, try something different, try some new ideas, things that we thought were a bit too risky. So things like running significantly bigger gears than anyone would ever consider in a team suit, but it probably played towards Jacob's strengths. So we thought that's, an, that's a great idea. And I guess the big one was the Medi method. A guy called Medi Cordy helped us. Yeah. He just said, why not change to man three? Why, why are you changing to four down? Dropping at three, Tipper stays further back in the line. He has an easier start. He has an easier ride throughout the entire race. He hits the front for half a lap, gets back on, Bob's your uncle, Fanny's your aunt, and everything's easy. And you look at him, you're like, well, it's a weird one. No one's done it before, but why not? So we practiced it a couple of times in training, rocked into competition, and I went to do it in qualifying, and Jacob forgot. <laughs> so I went to, to drop in at three, and suddenly he's there. So in qualifying, we didn't actually pull it off. Um, and thankfully, we got round in a reasonable time. I think we qualified, remember now, I want to say fifth or sixth, um, which was okay. I mean, we were seventh the week before, similar kind of time. But um, in the rounds, we then did do it. And I think mine's, people's heads fell off. They're like, what the hell's going on? And Chris Borman was probably the only guy who, <coughs> who clocked or understood exactly what we were doing because there were a lot of things about our strategy that were very different. We obviously changed to three. That was one. And he realized that was intentional. It wasn't a, a mistake, a gap that was made because you could 
actively see what we were doing on the bike. Uh, and the second one really was our long-term strategy. So we were using Johnny, who's really, really anaerobic. So like peak powers are heading towards 2000 watts kind of level for wow. an athlete that is actually relatively small relative to some of the sprinters, but big numbers, but he's not aerobic. So it made a lot more sense to use him up earlier on. It gives us an easier start. The line is nice and consistent. Anybody who's ridden in a chain gang knows if you do short turns, then it's very choppy and changey. The longer you can make that, everything sort of stabilizes and becomes a lot easier to, to ride in the line. So he did a five or six lap turn uh, and then ejected. And Chris spotted that. And then every everybody else, we were doing longer turns instead of the usual lap, lap and a half that people were doing in Team Pursuit. We were doing three, four lap turns. And you just cut down the number of changes because no matter whether you do four laps on the front in four one lap turns or one four lap turn, it's the same amount of energy you're spending on the front but you're just getting rid of all those changes. And every time you change, you lose a bike length. So we were changing three or four times in a, in a race and the competition might change 10 times, but we're six bike lengths ahead for no extra effort. And it was like one of those no brainer kind of moments. And it's since been adopted by the sport. See, seems to me that Boardman would recognize that because he too is a disruptor. And he's all the secret squirrel club was all about um, looking at things from a distance that, that perhaps had just been overlooked. Not that, you know, people are just dismissed as not, not working, but with the right people in the right circumstances, it could absolutely work, which is what you did. You played to your strengths. Yeah. I have the willingness to ask those questions, I think as well, which absolutely Chris had. And that was with the secret squirrels and their strength was that, they were asking questions that the sport had long since decided the answer on, right? Whether it was right or wrong. Mm. And then when you ask those questions again in modern day, where you can actually measure and understand and objectify all of this, then it's, it becomes so much easier to, to get those correct answers. So that that's sort of the other essence of, of what I got from your book was question everything. Why is it done like this? You know, has it always been done like this? Um, why hasn't anybody changed? Has somebody changed? Uh, has somebody tried it? And what, what happened when they did it? Was, did, was it a good idea, but at the wrong time or with the wrong people? You know, questioning everything rather than, and I know you talk a bit in here about questioning the rule book. What are the, what are the absolute givens that we cannot stray from? And where's the ambiguity that we can exploit? And why don't we, you know, if we become a master of the rule book, and, I, and I, it set me thinking about what are, the, what are the things that we could do in triathlon then that we could exploit here? I haven't, I haven't read the rule book enough yet, but I'm, I'm fairly certain that there are quite a, a, a number of loopholes that people could exploit. So that, that seems to be the other essence of your book is don't just take things at face value, question everything and see what you can change. Yeah, I think it, it brushes up some people the wrong way, asking all these kind of questions. But if it comes from the right place, then it can really help performance. Mm-hmm. I think teams, and especially if you're new to come in, to ask, why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? Can be... I uh, feel like people are trying to, or you're trying to undermine somebody. Whereas it's really more of a mindset, that scientific questioning of trying to understand and break things down and, and to get that basis of why a decision has been made. Because if you don't have a basis, then there's no good reason to really do anything. If you can't just copy and wing things and assume that's the best way to go about it. Mm. Whereas to really scientifically apply that principle and to break it down into why you do everything and to ask all those questions I think for us anyway, it was just an enjoyable thing to do because as I said earlier, like we all had our own thoughts on sport and where things were going wrong, but we created this environment where we could prove it rather than being that that couch critic on Twitter saying you're doing this wrong. It was, we know you're doing it wrong, but actually we're just going to go and show you how, how you're doing it wrong. 
<laughs> that's my biggest gripe about Twitter is everybody's full of everybody's very quick to criticize somebody but you never read anybody putting up solutions as to to how to solve the problem um and you know I'd have a lot more respect for some people if they actually said you know actually it's, it's bollocks that but you know if you just tried it like this that might work just and that, that whole thing about you might have found that with some of the people who work we don't give me problems just give me solutions <laughs> yeah but I think as well we found a lot of really helpful people on Twitter was one, probably one of the main ones uh, so even like Kurt Bergen-Taylor, who you might have come across from Loughborough Uni, he was a researcher there. And, uh, I think it was, I can't remember the exact subject matter in his PhD. It was something related to trade, uh, training uh, under dehydration, a few of the areas around hydration status. But it was just like a really knowledgeable person to bring into the team and ask those questions of like, okay, we've been told that this is the way you do it but why 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 would people say that and what do you think and the first meeting he wanted a bit of advice on some aero stuff and he, he lived down in Loughborough so it wasn't too far away from us in Derby he came along and we sat him on a sofa gave him a cup of tea and grilled him for about three hours and he got to the end with like sweat dripping down his face <laughs> like, like okay and what questions did you have on aerodynamics by the way and he was absolutely cooked but it's just a really good example a good environment that we kind of created the people like that we we took their knowledge and we applied it. And I think often it, it's, or at least it, a lot of practitioners struggled to get that, that traction with their research. And we were going the other way. We didn't, we weren't giving traction. We were pulling it actively out of them and running with it and using it as quick as we could. Mm-hmm. And I think they found that really nice. It was suddenly this, this outsource that they could, they could basically throw all their ideas into and see action really quickly. There's in the nutrition world, there's also, there's always lots of, um, you know stuff flying about you'll have seen it no doubt and been exposed to it about this diet's better that diet's better nobody ever really tells you why um uh, it's just the latest fad isn't it that somebody's trying to make some money out of and everybody jumps on onto it because they've seen somebody's instagram post but there's a there's a guy that i've had on a couple of times he's called tommy wood he's uh he's a doctor he's based in uh seattle but he's a he's a british guy and he has this thing with with nutrition he said look i don't care what the research says if you can tell me that it's working for you so like, let's take keto, for instance. It's not really an ideal nutrition plan to pair with endurance training um, for obvious reasons, the lack of carbohydrates. However, if you said to me, Dan, I've been following keto for a while, Simon, and you know I've had my best performances and I'm, I've been doing it for five years. I'm my healthiest. My blood marker's great. Then I couldn't say to you, well, the research doesn't support that. I'd have to, I'd have to say to you, well, that's brilliant, but you might be the outlier. But, but I, I also think that there's too many people want to see what the research says first rather than being the N equals one study to see what happens. Yeah, and I think create your own research, right? Yeah. You you, I mean, the research is out there, it's great, but often it's not always exactly applicable to you. It might be that it's the research is done on well-trained athletes rather than elite athletes, or it's done in females as opposed to males, or it's done at 4,000 metres and your event is significantly longer and it's never always the perfect i mean there are a few perfect studies so one example is a guy called lewis goff he did his study was uh, the effect of sodium bicarb supplementation on four kilometer time trial performance and it was like bingo that's us <laughs> we're in and and we we were all in with him and optimizing our sodium bicarb supplementation for, for the pursuit for four kilometer time trial performance um so that's yeah. all about that's all about um, lactate buffering is it yeah, yeah, exactly yeah. that. Yeah. So uh, it was a, it's a really good thing for, for short duration TT. So sort of that one to five minute kind of domain, maybe a little bit longer. Um, I think the research is still out there on that one. But yeah, I think trying to create your own 
test. You don't have to be a scientific researcher to, to find out, mm. does, does beetroot work for you? Does caffeine work for you? Does high carb, how much carbs can you absorb? Like we can all create pretty good scientific experiments over time. If we just spend a bit of time and effort thinking about it. And I think a lot of these questions we can answer ourselves if you've got the willingness to structure it. And we're all out there training and every training session is an opportunity to assess those kind of things. You mm-hmm. just have to be willing to put a little bit more effort in to create those environments, to ask those questions. So you get the training benefit and you get some learning at the same time. Yeah, it takes a while, doesn't it? Because you've got to you've got to change one one element at a time. You can't change lots of them and you've got to have more than one session to sort of uh, see if there's any correlation between this and the other one. It wasn't just a good night's sleep or that extra bit of toast you had. Um, yeah. uh, your book your book sort of finishes that project um, at the end of that first sort of 18 months. Uh, at what point did Dino from Hoob come in and uh, and start supporting you? Because Dino's another disruptor, isn't he, in, uh, in, in many ways? Yeah, he loves a bit of disruption. Yeah. Uh, when did we get involved with Dean? So I, I was involved with him from, I'm going to say early 2017, as, a, as an aerodynamicist helping out with a lot of his clothing and things through, mm-hmm. through a friend who'd introduced us. And they, he helped a little bit with the team, giving us a few sort of bags and T-shirts and just said, look, you're local. I really like what you're doing. Here's some kit. And I mean, that in itself was just really helpful because it all helps and everyone looks on point everyone's got who kit on and that was great and then after the first season he was like oh you guys aren't just like messing about like you're actually going out there and winning world cups and i really like what you're doing i wanted to come on as a title sponsor which was absolutely great for us we knew that we needed more funding to to grow as a team to be able mm. to do bigger races and to to just do more to to be better like scraping around on a 15 grand shoestring budget for seven races, four of them international, including buying all your equipment, accommodation, the lot is, is not possible for four guys. I mean, we somehow made it work with credit cards and what else. But yeah, so Dean came on after the first year and um, just threw so much behind us. It wasn't just financial. It was the connections as well that he had and his willingness to, to support us in whatever mm-hmm. we needed, whether it was skin suit development, overshoe development, sending us to a specific place for whatever it might be and pulled in all of his friends and connections as he does because I think Dean seems to know everybody in, in the world of sport. Every, he's been and, everybody know, and everybody knows Dean. Yeah, exactly. But it, it was a great asset. So we ended up with like Facom Tools were sponsoring us and then he connected us in with Wattbike and Wattbike came on as a partner as well. Um, I'm trying to think of others that it just ended up being like, give or take Derby. Okay, it ended up being a bit of Nottingham and whatever else. But it was all of his friends and partners have been like, you need to support these guys and get in. And suddenly we had like 20 plus partners and we had like two or three the year before. It was absolutely crazy. But then you've got collective ideas and some new technologies and the willingness to put you in this wind tunnel or go to this place. And it just was really, really helpful, well beyond just a little bit of a cash injection. It, it properly changed the team. Uh, and then, I mean, you can credit Dean for Darbados as well well because it was absolutely him that, that said it the first time off when we went for a curry one night uh and he just colloquially just said about Darbados and we'd never really heard it before and obviously Derby and Barbados thrown together but we were racing at all these World Cups and we didn't have a flag because we weren't Great Britain <laughs> right we were, we like. <laughs> we're like absolutely we need a flag and we ran with it we didn't really I don't get on we didn't yeah we didn't really get on with the with the national team and we, we felt like the People's Republic of Barbados, like a sort of tongue-in-cheek Monty Python kind of thing. And we just ran with it. We had our own flag made. So Dean got Rob um, in the design studio. We took the flag of Derbyshire. 
Uh, we got the Rolls-Royce jet engine, which was really cool because actually Rolls-Royce came on as a sponsor the year later. We had the silk mill uh, and then obviously a couple of palm trees. <laughs> just ran with it. it was Fantastic. I'd, I'd not heard that story before. That's brilliant. We'll definitely have to make some uh, um, reference to that in the show notes. What about you? Uh, I'm going to come back to the one-hour record towards the end, if, if we can, because I know you've had one go at doing that, and there was, a again, um, a little bit of controversy around that one. But um, you've got your own little business, aside from the cycling and the and the, the aerodynamics work you do. You've got what shop? Um, so when when did that start? Just tell us a little bit about that. And then also, uh, I know you're doing some work with Ineos Grenadiers. Uh, I know that some of that you probably can't talk about, but if you can give us a broad brush uh, picture about what, what your work's in generally involving with them. So Watchup started March 2016. Uh, so after I'd graduated, I'd worked in British Olympic sport, British athletics, British swimming for a little while in the consultancy. And I decided I wanted to run my own business and do my own thing and all the ideas and things that I was using for my own cycling, just having a, a, an outlet for that. And that's where Watchup began. And it's grown from 2016 to with me sort of scraping by as a bit of an income through till now, who have we got employed? So my brother, my mum, my dad, one of my best mates in uni, Mike. Um, we've got my fiance's brother, his wife. Uh, I feel like there's more that I'm probably going to forget. But yeah, there's, it's grown huge to the point that now I have to worry a whole lot less about running of the business. And now I can really focus on the ideas and, and making the cool stuff that I guess I did originally that you like throwing your ideas in and then it grows and grows and you end up doing a bit of everything. And now because the support network is there within the business that really my involvement is just around the sort of direction and the guiding of like, I think we should work on a bit of this. I think we should work on a bit of that. And I think this is a good idea. That's a bad idea. Why haven't we done this yet? Let's work on pulling all this together. And it's just, um, I guess, a fun outlet for all those kind of things. Um, Ineos Great Ideas has kind of thrown... Oh, hold on, hold on a sec, Dan. So just, just to give it a little plug now, if somebody was coming to Watch Shop, what what typically are they look they're going to get? They're going to get they're going to get things that helping them maximise the watts. So like wax chains and um, um, armrests and aero bars, extenders, and that sort of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, it's growing uh, huge amounts. So I ran the aero testing for a good amount of time until I started to to work with Ineos. At which point, it just wasn't feasible anymore. That I'm working with all these elite athletes all around the world and I'm not available in the UK to, to be hands-on with the public. So that's where Jamie came on and Jamie runs all our air testing as well. So whether that's on the track, in the wind tunnel, bike fitting, et cetera, it's all, all within watch top. And then, yeah, the componentry side, extensions, armrests, crank sets, base bars, soon to be handlebars, chain rings, wax chains, Pretty much anything you can think of, we've kind of probably gone down that direction. If, it, if it's something that I think could be designed a bit better or made a bit faster, we'd probably make it. Cool. Okay. Sorry, I interrupted you there. We just about <laughs> to, you were just about to um, speak briefly about Ineos then. Yeah, I probably should sell Watch Shop a bit better. I, I've maybe sold that a bit short. I, I well, we'll put, we'll put, we'll, we'll, we'll put a, uh, we'll put a, a, a big link into, into the show notes for you. And um, you know we can we can talk off air about how we can maybe work together on that one. Yeah, I think as an engineer, I'm I'm always like things should be sold based on their their general merit, and I, I'm not a salesman by any stretch. I always struggle on that side. So thanks to other people on the social media for all that stuff. So anyway, yeah, Ineos kicked off about a year ago was when I got in contact with Dave. We uh, had a ch- chance encounter with Dave Brailsford and had a good discussion over a few months to kind of figure out the role and what they wanted. But effectively, I'm. Uh, well, my, my title is performance engineer. It was nearly race engineer. We were kind of jumping between the two. But effectively, 
I'm that sort of conduit between the riders and the technology. So to try and talk the riders terminology, but also talk in engineering and aerodynamic terms. So I can bring the technology to them and explain to them in meaningful in things that mean something to them, but also take their feedback, understand their feedback and take that as well to all of our partners and sponsors and to work on things and kind of be that middleman because it never really was bridged too well in the sense of riders had their own demands and requirements and engineers and aerodynamicists obviously think they know as well what the sport needs and how they're going to get faster and they don't always align that well and I think because I've bridged the gap I, I still race and ride and a lot of the riders respect me for that I, I race against them at national and even like world champs levels like world champs last year I think I beat three or four of the guys who raced in the world time trial so they're they're kind of like well we can't say what you're saying is wrong because you beat us so there's probably a bit in that uh, which is quite nice. And uh, living in Andorra means I can go and ride with them and, and become friends as well. And it's a much easier environment to have those discussions to understand mm. what their worries are, what their hopes are, what their questions are, and to just give them honest feedback and answers. Because I think riders have often struggled with being given the sort of party line or the marketing line of like, this is faster and this is slower and that's that. Whereas I, I think I'd blur that boundary a bit more and that they're, they're a bit more happy to, to ask me the questions because they believe the answers they get. Yeah, that must be, if if you like, uh, Geraint Thomas, for instance, who um, started off in the Great Britain track team, won Olympic gold medals in the team pursuit, so exactly what you've been talking about earlier, um, where they had a bike designed for that one purpose and uh, to go faster. And yet in in the Pro Tour, you've got teams that have got uh, um, contracts and um, arrangements with bike manufacturers. And, and I guess that whilst there must be some harmony there, there must also be a bit of discord sometimes because the bike manufacturers got this idea about their design. I mean, um, Ineos is still on Pinarello, so they've got that fancy little fork arrangement, which is totally different from everybody else's. I think Pinarello is, unless I'm wrong, are they still one of the only teams that have not gone to disc brakes for their road bikes? We are disc brake now. <laughs> right, okay. But up until this year, then they weren't. So then if mm. if if you've dis- if you've realized that actually disc brakes are better on mountain descents, the heat the tires don't heat up, the, the rims don't heat up, the brakes don't fade, and you're losing out on those descents, but you still can't get hold of a bike with disc brakes, that must be very frustrating. Yeah, I think um it was probably lighter rider led more than anything. Um obviously it was before that I, I joined the team after the transition, but um yeah, there were so many question marks. And I think the biggest one was when you're going down a mountain descent and you're having to break so much earlier than everybody else. It was like, mm-hmm. a, we need this now. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and then, yeah, things happen very quickly when when the riders really want them, um, which is a good thing. I mean, this team is, is so fast at responding to stuff. It's, it's genuinely impressive that I've worked in Formula One and then I came out of Formula One and was frustrated with engineering in the real, real world of how <laughs> slow it moves. And then to actually come back into a high-performance environment where people are so willing to work quickly is it's refreshing and it's it's really nice because stuff mm. happens as quickly as I feel it should happen um, in this kind of environment. And I, I've been on both sides of the fence, obviously, as a manufacturer with WatchShot. I see and struggle with supplier issues and components and materials and all the stuff that makes supplying stuff in a short time frame really hard. But then on the athlete side, I'm like, I want it yesterday. And Ineos have got a really good setup with their partners that stuff happens in the right yeah. time frame. It's never like immediate, but it's not, not in, a, in a frame that's really costing performance. And I think, um, yeah, that's quite a good environment to be in. Okay, well, let's, um, let's get a bit more specific now. 
as I mentioned earlier, most of my listeners are triathletes, not all of them, and a lot of them are keen cyclists. Um, so I wanted to see if we could think of an exercise, maybe it's cycling related, um, that we could work through on air. All right, is that, is that going to be a bit of a push, do you think? I did give you a bit of a warm up so I, uh, on this yesterday, so I don't know if you've um, I don't know if you've got something on your whiteboard there. Um, I have not, but um, I'm always happy to fly off the cuff. Okay, well let's so let, let's say a, a triathlete um, wants to be a faster biker. Well, he wants to have a faster bike split at his next half Ironman, so that's over 56 miles. Mm-hmm. Okay, I could give you a whole load of particulars about this person, but let's you you can ask the questions. But let's say he wants to get he or she wants to get faster um, using the principles of reverse engineering. What are the, what are the things we're going to look at first that give us the biggest return? What are the questions that you're going to ask? Okay. Uh, how fast are they going now and how fast do they want to go? Mm-hmm. Would be the first two questions. I'd want to know how long they've got for this project. Is it a week? Is it a month? Is it a year? <laughs> uh, the budget and the resource, how much time and how much money they're willing to put is it an hour a day is it an hour a week is it a thousand pounds is it ten thousand pounds so you can kind of understand how much they're willing to commit to it and then i think from there it's really understanding how much power they have um so whether they from a physiological and energy perspective how much low-hanging fruit do they have so are they performing very well is there more to be gained on that front and then to try and understand and contextualize that how often they're training, what's their nutrition like, what's their consistency like, can they increase that in short durations ahead of peak competition, et cetera, and try and understand how much availability there is, how much headroom there is to improve on the physiology side. And then on the other side, the technological side, the energy outside, I like to call it, is to then to look at how much they need to, well, firstly, what the course is, so we can try and break that down. There's a lot of really good tools out there, um, my windsock, best bike split, even Aerotune are working on some of their software. Um, and you can even do it yourself with a, a bit of learning if you're really keen to, to get stuck in, if you've got the time and the resource to. But those kind of uh, software packages that cost like sort of 10, 15 pounds a month sometimes, it's really not a huge amount. They can pull apart and say, okay, well, maybe 60% for this course is aerodynamic and 20% is rolling distance and a few percent is drivetrain, a little bit is gravity. And you can then go, okay, so... If I'm going to flip this round, it will then model the course and say, we're going to ride at, let's say, 200 watts for the 56 miles, the 90 kilometers. And with all the values that we've measured from your previous race, if we find a little bit here and a little bit there and a little bit there, you're going to go this much faster. So then you kind of can get some good idea of how much you need to work on the equipment front. Then it gets a bit harder to really understand, is it going to come from position? Is it clothing? Is it helmets? Is it frame? Is it wheels? Is it tires? Is it drivetrain? It's obviously a whole holistic system. And I think that's where professional help really does come into its own. Um, People spend them, well, literally their entire careers researching and trying to understand this. And I think that's where the one big investment financially can really reap a huge amount of rewards because you can shortcut your way through having to do that testing yourself. Having That big investment financially then, I mean, I, I'm a coach. If you want to get fitter, uh, I can help. Um, I can certainly help on things like strength training and mobility. And so being able to get into a better position and for a better position for longer. I know a little bit about tech, but of course, sometimes a little bit's a dangerous thing. So, um, that's is that specialist help that you're talking about? Somebody who knows about aerodynamics, and is that what you do at What Shop? 
Yeah, absolutely. What we do at WhatShop and offer that as a consultancy service where you could literally book in for an hour chat and just say, look, these are all the questions I want to ask. And you can just talk and pick the brains of, of Jamie and to really understand a bit more about how either WhatShop can help or just what you can do. And often it, it can be everything from a, a beginner through to a top level athlete. And they just want to want to ask those questions because it's, it's often expensive to go out there and find out for yourself, whether that's through time or through finance, like it costs, it costs the resource. I, I, I equate time and, and money as, as a resource as, as one sort of asset. And you can either learn it yourself or you can pay somebody to do it. And often that shortcut can be really powerful. I'm much the same on the other side of the fence to you. Like I know a little bit on physiology enough to be dangerous. <laughs> so um, we probably complement quite well in that respect. And that's why I, I pay a coach because I don't understand the physiology anywhere near well enough. And it helps to have somebody who does and has that that ability to shortcut and to avoid the potholes and to avoid all of those pitfalls that inevitably people come across because you can see it 10 miles away before the athlete is mm. probably in that, in that crater, in that pothole. So for triathletes then obviously cycling is, there's, there's a large technical component. There's a fair amount of aerodynamics that we can improve this, this, you know, I think 80% of the drags caused by the rider, right? That about right. So there's a lot. There's a lot. If they're gonna if they're gonna make improvements and investments, perhaps the you know the eighty twenty rule. You know, focus mostly on what you can do to improve your owner dynamics before you spend a grand on a set of wheels. Not that that's going to harm, but still, um, you could you could use your money better and your time better by working on yourself. What about in swimming and running? And I know that this isn't your massive area of work, but you do have some experience of this from being a triathlete. So. Um, and, you, and you've got that sort of problem solving mind. So how would we approach it for those two disciplines? That is a good question. So if we avoid the physiology side and think on the technology side of how you break that down, well, I, actually, no, I think you can, you can think about both. So I think from the physiology side, it's again, understanding what you need to, to do to run that fast and you can break down the demands. And again, a coach is really helpful for this to say, if you're going to swim that fast, you need, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, swimmer by any stretch so I couldn't tell you the, the breakdown of the performance determinants but they could say you need this kind of engine you need this kind of stroke you need this efficiency whatever it might be you need to be able to achieve this in training to swim this fast in competition and much like in running you can then break it down and you could fit a model to the data you have you could get a, a critical running velocity and a deep prime if people want to dig into the critical power critical speed model uh, and start to look at how you can improve either of them. And it might be that it could be, I mean, running is big on weight. The, there's a big factor of efficiency to do with weight, or you could go into a lab and you could benchmark yourself. You could do a ramp test and you could get, again, some really insightful information on how efficient you are, either from uh, a glycogen, a car, a, and a fat oxygenation side, or you could then also look at different shoes. You could say, oh, all these great new shoes out there, which is the one for me because everyone's running gait is different. Do you have the Asics? Do you have the Adidas? Do you have the Nike? And if you get your hands on all of them, then you can start to actually look at the efficiency of, of which is the best shoe for you. Um, it's a harder one to sell on the aerodynamic side for running, definitely. It's, the impact is significantly lower. But um, I think in general, it's trying to understand really what the end goal is, uh, what physiologically you need to be able to do to achieve that end goal and especially if you contextualize in your triathlon because the ability to run a 17 minute 10k in isolation is very different to doing it after swimming a run and to holistically look at the entire thing and say okay well this has an impact on your bike which has an impact on your run so you're probably going to have the optimal weight 
for your swimming, your biking, your running, your optimal um, body composition, your optimal physiology? Is it more sprint based? Is it more strength work you need to do? Do you where where are all those mm. areas lying? And then obviously on the technology side for cycling, it's a lot easier to to weigh up both sides of the equation. And for example, what's the CDA? Is it really sorry? You, no, 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 no. Just just finish off what you were going to say. I have a yeah, question so like, about about the running element. So yeah, the, what's the CDA is a really really helpful metric I think for for anybody and effectively for you to go fast against the clock uh, on pretty much any course that is the metric that matters you need to put more power in or reduce your CDA and it's really nice to look at the ratio of the two and say okay well if my CDA comes down but my power goes down because I'm less efficient then actually your what's the CDA ratio might be lower so you might be better off with a, a less aerodynamically efficient position if your power production is better but then you have the argument of adaptation over time should you then spend time adapting to the position and again that's where professional help comes in because they know what is achievable over time and how long and what the time frames are so when you're running is there a speed you know a velocity of running where running behind somebody will save you energy does does that work in running so if let's say I'm, i was at the outlaw half at the weekend so most of the people are running they're doing a lot of the running around home pier pump there and i don't know if you've ridden there but um often you get the wind behind you on one of the long legs and come and into your face coming back so if you're running along at um 10 kilometers 12 kilometers an hour and there's a guy in front of you or a person in front of you running and you're you're running together. Are you going to save energy if you run behind them into the wind? Absolutely. And I have okay. spent a lot of time at the Hope Airpoint. Uh, yeah. I've raced there, the triathlon, I've raced relays there. I think it was the national yeah. relay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I crashed up in the bottom corner coming into transition. <laughs> oh, yeah. <by laughs> yeah, on that on that sharp little turn where the where the concrete's really sketchy and it's always a bit damp, yeah. Yeah, in front of all spectators. And, we stand, and everybody stands there with the camera just waiting for that one person. <laughs> that was me. But yeah, absolutely. So th- it's not like there's a step change. It's not like if you're at nine and a half K an hour, there's no difference at 10, there's loads. It's a um, steady gradient. And th- there will always be a benefit. It's just whether that benefit is meaningful. Uh, whenever there's a headwind, absolutely, there'll be more benefit. It's very likely that you could reduce that headwind to close to zero. Uh in the wake of a runner it depends how close you run as well there's some interesting studies and they all came to the fore around the breaking two and then the 159 project because people were like okay well what's happening from an aero perspective when you're running and in these different formations and obviously the big tesla they had with the timing board and where the gains came from but there were some good studies um done in a wind tunnel of uh, effectively like the deficit the momentum deficit behind a rider the size of behind a runner the size of the wake and there is a benefit it's not huge but it's something. But it could be, you, you know, maybe you don't go faster, but maybe you just save a little bit of energy. And if you do that collectively over um, a 90-minute half marathon, that could be the difference between you getting on the podium and finishing fourth or fifth, for instance, because you've just, you're just not going to tire out in the last few kilometres like you might do otherwise if you've been breaking through the wind yourself. Yeah, I think... The so it's a, mar- it's a marginal gain, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. You could either have an easier run, for that time and then run faster later or run faster then and, and maintain the speed later. So there's, you can have it either way, but yeah, it's, it's definitely one that people should be doing. And obviously in swimming, it's easily measurable or measurable, but easily noticeable. If you're in someone's wake, it's huge. Okay. I, uh, I told you I'd got some questions from one of my uh, more informed 
um, athletes. So Simon Fawcett asked these questions. So here, this is where to put your thinking cap on. So he did set some parameters so that there's not too many ifs and buts. Let's say we're racing around the, the roads of Nottingham. So we're doing a, a fairly flat course like the one at the Outlaw. It's 90K. Um, if the rider's averaging, say, just over 20 miles an hour, Okay, so this, so I know, I know that you're going to say that there are certain benefits that come when you're riding fast and not as much when you're riding slower. So if somebody's riding at say 21 miles an hour, um, what are the big things that are going to make a difference to them? Um, is it is it about being able to hold an aero position for as long as possible? Because that course is relatively flat. There's a there's a little hill going through one of the villages, but apart from that, if if you were well prepared. Mm-hmm. What do you what do you lose by sitting on the bullhorns for a bit because your back's hurting or your neck's tired? Uh, you can figure it out. So I would say that the slower you go, the more absolute time gain you have for for one watt improvement. So the faster guys, one watt sounds like they would chase that. That's worth so much time, but actually in time, it's really small because the, the speed increase from that watt is so much lower. So whereas if you're a, a slower athlete, let's say you're traveling at 15 miles an hour, and you're increased by one watt, your proportional increase is so much greater. So you actually save absolute terms a lot more time. So it, um, Okay, so so for, so for slower athletes actually should be listening to this because these, these changes will make more significant difference to them than our race leaders, yeah? yeah absolutely so. If you want time, you need to be a... A stickler for details because you will you will save more time and it's weird because the mindset tends to be the opposite of i will focus on this when i'm this fast right. it's actually if you focus on it when you're not that fast you'll get much faster okay but um if we were to say uh, in wattage terms i don't know sitting up on the base bar might cost you in cda it's a big question i haven't tested this in a while probably 0.05 which means nothing to most people but that's probably somewhere around uh what is terms you're probably talking around 40 watts 30 Whoa. to 40 watts an aero yeah. which is about four seconds per kilometer so for every kilometer you ride on the base bar that's six. costing you about four seconds so four times 90 360 seconds six minutes could be yeah yeah maybe more. that's probably yes. a, a so you could lose. So you could. So you could spend all of that time training to put on an extra twenty watts on your FTP, and then lose it instantly by um, by just not being able to sp- stay in that aero position on that really expensive aero bike that you've just lashed out five grand on. Yeah, aero bikes are an interesting one. So the difference between an aero bike and a non-aero bike. So let's say like a road bike with clip-ons and your best time trial bike. It's probably less than half of the difference between the skis and the base bar. Right. So body position is huge, uh, but consistent body position. So your, yeah. your absolute value that you can hold for 30 seconds or a minute, well done, fabulous. So you're racing a kilo, great. You've done really well. Oh, you're racing 90K, uh, then probably consistency is a bit more important. And even for, for time trials, we, we look at it quite a bit nowadays at the World Tour level. How consistent can the rider hold it? The first five minutes to the last five minutes, how how good are they? And for the hour record, it's, it's it's huge because those little details add up, even if it's only the last five minutes where you can't hold your position. But if you lose 10 watts the last five minutes, mm. then the, the previous 55, if you do the maths, then you may as well have been a watt or two less aero and held the position throughout for the same performance. 
Mm. What about shaving your legs versus not shaving legs? I mean, that's a big one, isn't it? Does does mm. that really matter? Is that just is this just one of these things that's handed down over the years that nobody really questions? Uh, very little to no difference from a aero perspective. However, I my opinion is there's probably something in like the sort of morale and culture of doing it. And the mental state of knowing you've done everything you can when you're on the start line. If you look down and see hairy legs, then you're like, well, there's some performance there. Might not be much, half a lot, let's say. So so in Yorkshire, uh, and I, I don't know if you've if you've ever chatted with Alistair Brownley, but Alistair um is, is like he's a fell runner, he's a Yorkshire lad. We don't shave his legs in Yorkshire. So um have you had a word with him about that one? Well, I'm on his uh, pacing team for sub seven. So if he doesn't shave his legs for that, then he's going to have <laughs> <laughs> I'll take him straight out the back. <laughs> he's not breaking any seven out of Shave his legs for himself. But what yeah. about what about things like aero calf cards, though? Do, do they make a difference? And is that better than shaving your, shaving your calves? Absolutely. They are huge. They're one of the most efficient upgrades that anybody can put on. It's a bit frustrating. Well, for a non-wetsuit swim, you can't swim with them, which is a bit annoying. And for a wetsuit, obviously, then they're wet. But the gain is, is massive. So in wattage terms, depends on the speed, you could be sort of five to 10 watts, wow. which is, is massive, like half a second to one second per kilometer. And all you've done is put some calf guards on. Okay. Aero helmet versus normal road bike helmet versus one of those sort of hybrid road aero helmets so the caveat to this is it depends on your head position i would assume that you're in a kind of triathlon high head position so it can be pretty substantial maybe sort of in the 10 to 15 watt region so a second to a second and a half per kilometer if you went from a, a road helmet to a tt helmet the aero helmet in the middle i would say there's not Rarely, anyway, a huge amount. You're probably talking those sort of two, three, four watts from a road helmet to an aero road helmet. They're not that much different. It's the right. shape of the TT helmet that really benefits. Okay, but of course, if you're doing a, a 90K ride and it's quite warm, then your head getting too hot can cause you to lose concentration, which means you might sit up, which means it negates the benefit of having the helmet in the first place. Yeah, and your body responds to what it perceives rather than what's happening. So if your head's getting hot, you probably think you're getting hot, whether your core temp is or not. So you'll respond to that, and then you'll actively try and cool down and do things to cool you down, even if you don't need to. So yeah, okay. keeping your head cool is actually a big thing as opposed to actually keeping your core cool because it's what you feel mm. is what you respond to. Um, Top-end sleeved tri-suit um, versus uh, a sleeveless tri-suit. Uh, varies depending on the material of the arm, which is really important. Much like the material of the calf guards, actually, I probably should have said that. The material choice for the size and the speed that you're traveling at is pretty important. But unfortunately, you've just got to test that on yourself to, to know for sure. Um, for some people, benefit could be pretty small, handful of watts. For some people, it could be absolutely huge. It could be 15, 20 watts going for a sleeve suit. Depends a lot on your body shape, your head position, the size of your arms, how how much knee clear flow they are. Effectively, the way to think about it is anything that looks like a cylinder to the airflow is probably pretty bad, and you probably want a material on it of some variety. Okay, all right. Well, uh, you, we talked about wax change sets, um, ceramic bearings. Uh, they're really big, and I've, I've you know they in Hawaii they have a huge stand out there for. Um, for that sort of stuff and they're flipping expensive as well so uh it, for you for the return on investment which of those is worthwhile probably right at the very bottom of the list so what i try to do is 
to create a big table of pounds per watt. Mm-hmm. So how many watts can you gain? How much yeah. can it cost you? Yep. Everything at the top, buy it straight away, work your way down. But you're talking half a watt to a watt, maybe, and you're going to spend four or five hundred pounds for the pleasure. It's pretty bad on the efficiency scale, to be completely honest. What about things like shorter cranks? That's very popular now. I've heard them say that if you're in the aero position, longer cranks mean that that at the top end of the at the top dead, dead center of the pedal stroke, your knees are close to your chest, so that could restrict breathing. So do do shorter cranks help? Is it an aero um, thing or a physiological thing? Primarily a physiological thing. It can enable people to be more aerodynamic if they need to be lower than their current cranks allow them to. Right. But it's very case specific. I would say it's not that putting shorter cranks on Sunny makes you a million times better athlete. If you've got an impingement, if you're limited and you need to get lower at the front end, then yeah, absolutely short cranks can help. If you're not limited and you don't need to get lower to get more aero, probably no real real difference. From a mm-hmm. physiological perspective, peak power outputs don't seem to change across crank lengths from 120 to 220 mil. All the studies at least suggest that. But again, you could be an outlier, so maybe you want to test yourself. Right. Anything that we've missed that's going to give us, I know we could we could probably do a whole different podcast on tyres, tubes, tubeless versus tubs, silk versus this and that and the other, you know, everything else. Any other upgrades on on what the rider's going to be wearing or doing? Um, uh, latex inner tubes, I would say, is probably yeah. the best upgrade out there. So if you're not on tubeless and you're running clincher because you need to or you prefer to, then a latex inner tube is so much faster than a butyl inner tube. And they cost about 10 quid. Right. Yeah, that's massive win. The other, the other thing I wanted to ask you, there's, um, there's been some d- discussion now on some of the various cycling forums about the introduction of new, not new, different style handlebars, gravel type handlebars, and those with different positions. Victor Campanart's has publicly been wearing these where the, the brake levers are angled in. He's got, um, he's got the sort of flared handlebars. Uh, they've got the aero top bar. Um, do those make a real difference or does it, is it just about giving the rider a bit more comfort in having um, different hand positions on a long ride? So width of handlebars is really, really important. It's super sensitive to aerodynamics. So going narrow can be a massive benefit. Um, how narrow is kind of a factor of your body shape, your flexibility, the confidence to ride or adapt to a narrow handlebar. I don't believe there's a huge difference in handling. It's just more of an adaptation thing because most people have ridden with 38, 40s or 42s or even wider for, mm. for their entire cycling career. So to suddenly go to, let's say, a 32 or 34 centimetre handlebar, it's quite a difference. But you adapt very quickly. Uh, then the flare itself is kind of a combination of enabling you to be aerodynamic on the hoods, but then have a bit more leverage when you want to sprint. But, um, I, I'm a big fan of them. I like a flared handlebar, I like a narrow handlebar. Um, I think more people should ride them. Yeah, well, maybe maybe we can do another podcast and talk about gravel riding and uh, road riding and the aero benefits there, because that's, uh, that's a bit more nuanced, isn't it? Yeah, indeed. We'll probably bring Ashton Lambie on for that. He loves a gravel chat. Cool. Listen, Dan, is there anything we've missed today? Uh, I feel like we've been on a, a, a down a few rabbit holes. We've been on a great journey from Formula One to uh, to uh, shaving legs, and um, we didn't talk about sub seven. We haven't talked about your one hour record. Oh, that too. Um, a quick plot synopsis of that. <laughs> I don't even know where you start, but um, effectively, the back end of last year, I broke Bradley Wiggins' British hour record, which is, I guess, unofficially the sea level world record. Um, but yeah, the plan in just a handful of months' time is to have a go at the world hour record. I'm now on uh, Adam's whereabouts, sort of the anti-doping stuff, and everything's 
all the plans are afoot to, to have another go at it. And effectively, I need to find 362 metres, I think it is, off the top of my head. So about equivalent to about seven watts, whether I find seven watts in aero, tyres, my legs, <laughs> then seven watts is what I need to break the record. So uh, that's that's the next big event on the agenda, I guess. Is, is that why you're living in Andorra then, to get the benefits of sort of living at that sort of livable um, altitude? Yes, yeah, one of the reasons, multitude really, of the t- half the team are based here within the art. So for me to be out and be working with them day to day, my partner Joss rides for, you know, X, a women's world tour team. So for training and altitude, it's great for her. And yeah, for me, for the altitude as well, I'm, I'm a big responder to it. So it's, yeah, it's good to be up here. Fantastic. Okay. Yeah, well, sub seven in what we've got, two weeks. <laughs> so yeah. that'd be good fun. That, I mean, and that's that's been interesting, hasn't it? I mean, I, I know people say, well, it's not a proper triathlon. You know, they're going to be doing this, going to be drafting and this and that and the other. But, it's, I, I've, you know, I know Alistair quite well and I've listened to him talking about this. He said it's just, it's just a fantastic journey in what you, what you could do and looking at all the logistics and all the little things. And a lot of the things that we've talked about today, what things really matter? What can you do? What, what's really possible if you change some of the rules? Yeah, simple as that. Like totally new rule book. I mean, it's not blown wide open when you're not going to see us riding around on fed recumbents, for example. But it's kind of enough that it creates a new environment to work within to try new things. And I think that's all it is. Yeah, it's not an Ironman triathlon. It's not meant to be an Ironman triathlon. It's meant to be how fast can you cover that distance mm. with support around you. And yeah, I, I, I've been involved for over a year now. I think we've been uh, working on it and. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just keen to get out there and, and ride real hard, and fingers crossed, Ali can, can bring it home. Yeah, well, that that'll be a that that'll be an interesting thing to look at and uh, and see. So, best of luck with that. Best of luck with the hour record. Best of luck with the uh, with the Ineos stuff. I, I seem to be there's lots of best of luck. I'm wishing you. So, uh, yeah, you. 2022 is going to be an exciting year for you. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. It's uh, it's been really enjoyable to chat and dig no. into all these new things. No, I appreciate it, Dan Bigham. Thank you very much for being on the show. To make sure that you don't miss any episode in the future, please go to iTunes, search for High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast and subscribe. If you'd like specific guidance and structure for your training, then please think about joining my SWAT community where we have training plans for all types of endurance events as well as monthly live workshops, diving deep on specific subjects and we also have a thriving Facebook community of like-minded individuals. You can find a link for this in the show notes. So thank you again to Dan Bigham for being a guest on this week's High Performance Human Podcast. As usual, there are links to all of today's discussion topics in the show notes below. That's it for now. Have a great week and I will see you on the next episode.